back, everybody. It is a new year and a new episode of the Content Lab podcast, which is all about how that completely unsexy content marketing sausage gets made. Uh, I am Liz Moorhead, the Impact Director of Web and Interactive Content. I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by the absolutely splendiferous John Becker, our Editorial Content Manager. Hi, John. How are you? Hey, Liz. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How was your time off? It was lovely. Um, lots of family and friends and uh, good times and good food. How about you? Um, I wish I had worked less, uh, but I'm just a compulsive person when it comes to that kind of thing. I, and I know that speaks to some sort of like deep moral failing on my part. You know, people always talk about, you know, you need to unplug, you need to do this. But at some point, the anxiety sets in where I, you know... Megan Kinney Anderson, who is the VP of marketing at HubSpot, had this funny tweet that went out a couple weeks ago, right before Christmas, that said she really feels bad for uh, New Year, Megan, because, quote, we'll circle back to that in the new year is an exceptionally dangerous phrase. <laughs> and I started keeping track after I read that tweet of how many times I said that. It got, it's, once it started getting around like the 18, 19 mark, I just started seizing a little internally. Uh, but other than that, it's been great. Um, I let the cat out of the bag in a recent issue of the latest, so I now I can say it out loud. So I'm prepping for my move to Connecticut. Yeah, I know. I'm going to be joining you. We're going to be able to record in person. Um, less than two months away, moving up at the end of February. So right now, honestly, the house looks like a bomb went off <laughs> because <laughs> I'll start these like big sorting and organization projects, and then say to myself, "Hmm, I want a snack," and then I'll just stand up and walk away. And then I'll come back down. I'm like, oh, so everything's on fire. So yeah, it's been packing, working, working on a relocation because it's not just to move across the street. I'm moving multiple states. Uh, so it'll be fun. I'm excited. Very exciting. Very exciting. How So how is that inbox after so much? We'll circle back to this in the new year. Let's not talk it? about it. Yeah, okay, like, it. I definitely had a moment of just like, like wanting to breathe into a, like a brown paper bag. Uh, but yeah, it was good. But I, my understanding is, uh, Sean, you're not making my life any easier today because I am going directly into the hot seat today. The hot seat. That's Sizzle, correct. <laughs> so a few episodes ago, we had our colleague Dan Baum on, and we talked about something that a lot of people at Impact talk about and a lot of professionals talk about, which is transitioning from how you're taught to write in high school and college to how you're expected to write when you have a, a totally different audience, a totally different goal in mind. And we're talking specifically about, about content marketing. And I think whether you graduated college you know, six months ago, six years ago, or, or uh, you know, quite a bit longer. Um, it can be hard to know how to approach that. And we brought Dan on because Dan was a, a science major in college. So he was really used to writing, um, you know, very uh, evidence-driven, and I think we would probably say dry reports of, of you know, laboratory experiments nerdy and, stuff. and things, nerdy stuff. Nerdy stuff. So how do you go from that to, um, you know, matching your tone to something that, that is readable and, and scannable and easily digestible by your audience, like we're often asking our um, content writers to do. 
So today we are going to talk about sort of extend that conversation into, okay, well, how do, how do companies help their employees with that transition? And something that we do at Impact and is hugely beneficial is we have a style guide. And style guide is just as it sounds, um, uh, sort of outlines and expectations around um, what our content should sound like. And Liz, this is something that you have put a ton of um, effort and um, development into. So you have quite a bit of expertise. So that's why you're on the hot seat today. So this is sort of both how we, um, you know, why a style guide is useful, how you make a style guide, um, and how you both standardize the voices coming out of your company while also allowing for individuality and, and difference. So can you start off with, you know, what is a style guide? What does it kind of look like? Where does it live? Who owns it? That kind of thing. Oh, you know, just a really simple, straightforward and loaded <laughs> question. That's fine. That's fine. All right. So uh, you are my friend, but you're throwing me to the wolves immediately. Got it. Okay. So um, jokes aside, content style guides, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's something that I've devoted a lot of time to because it's something I'm particularly passionate about. So for those of you who may not know, I actually came to Impact as part of a merger uh, almost three years ago at this point. Uh, Quintain Marketing was an inbound marketing agency and back in like early, mid 2017, we merged. But this was a process I had built to solve a very specific problem. And that's, I think, the best way to describe what a content style guide is. It's the most important branding document you don't know you need because it's the thing that makes it so no matter who writes for your brand, you all stylistically sound the same. And when we say style, style is that kind of one dimensional word that makes you think, oh, ew, content, homework. But really it's, it, what it means is as a brand, you know what you want to say. You know what services and products you want to talk about. You know what uh, big topics you want to talk about, whether that's big five, like pricing, problems, comparisons, all those things. You know the what, you know the core of your message. Your style guide is how you say it. And the way I always tell people about the importance of style is imagine if I were to walk out on a stage and say to you, you know, hey, I'm really smart. You've never met me. I'm super detail oriented. I'm like super good at these particular types of things. But as I'm doing that, I'm standing there in front of you in pajamas, with Cheeto dust on my face and my shirt, and clearly showering is, is, a, is something I, I choose to engage in in a minimal frequency. You know, it's the packaging around who you are, what you do, what you stand behind, what your core values are, what your expertise is. It's the stuff we take for granted. Because it's kind of like what we learn in all of those business, communica- business communication courses. As soon as you start, as soon as you walk into a room, before you open your mouth, you are communicating who you are, what you value, all of those different things. And your brand does the exact same thing. And it does that through style. Now, style has three core components. And this is where we start getting into what a content style guide is. Um, so the first one is your voice. Voice is simply a way of saying your personality. Like these are the things that should always come to mind about your brand when somebody says, oh, impact, you know, accessible, expert, candid, you know, things like that. Those are the things that never change no matter the context. 
So if you want to, again, put that in that personal equivalent, you know, it, it would be the same for me as wanting, these are the attributes I want people to always say about me, Liz Moorhead, all the time. You know, friendly, gregarious, storyteller, approachable, you know, all of those different things. That's what your voice is. It's the feelings you inspire in someone without explicitly telling them what you want to inspire. So how much do those change from one business to the next? It really depends on a lot of things. I've noticed that sometimes a lot of people, and this is something we can get into a little bit more deeply as you're trying, because there's a whole process you go to, to find out what your voice is. Um, but I would say you're going to see companies sometimes share some similar attributes like approachable, you know, accessible, friendly, things like that. But where you start seeing some changes and why there's no like one or two words that encapsulate your voice it is when you start thinking about, well, how established is your business? What is your audience looking for from you? Because that's the thing, you know, we sit here and we talk about like, these are the things that I want to be known for. But when I think about Liz Moorhead, again, using a person example, when I think about Liz Moorhead as a content director staying on stage and the things I want to inspire in other people, that is very much based on my knowledge of the audience, who they are, what their expectations are, and also quite frankly, what their thresholds are. You could be, for example, a financial services company, and you may deep down in your heart and soul want to be friendly, approachable, fun, blah, blah, blah. But is that really what your wealth management clients are looking for? Are they looking for something that's more classic, established, clean, concise, you know, things like that. Now, some of those last words I mentioned actually go into the second component of a style guide, but it's still, you know, that established, authoritative, you know, um, knowledgeable expert, you will find sometimes more weighty attributes depending on where you are. Again, it's that blend. There's no like, oh, we are friendly, period. You know? So before we go on to the second component, talk to me about how you, as a company, figure out what your voice is and what it should be. And you're totally right. You know, it depends on industry. It depends on how established you are. It depends on, you know, any number of, of, of uh, variables. So how do you figure that out? Yeah. So I I actually do this through with clients through um, a series of exercises. So essentially the, the, the process that I've built and there are many different ways to go from point A to point B, this is just mine. And it's the thing that I found worked across all industries with more than a hundred clients. So I have to say it is tested, but I also know there are different ways to do it. So this is just my approach. My approach is I generally get a diverse cross-section of people within a company. You never want all marketers. You never want all leaders. You want one to two leaders in there, a C-level, a VP. Um, You probably want some mid-managers in there. You want somebody from sales, and then you want someone who does the work of the company. Hmm. You want that holistic view of what your company is because it's the same thing of like what – the worst content strategies we see are ones where marketers don't engage with sales or leadership or other members of the company and trying to figure out what people want to hear. It's the same thing with your brand. So you get everybody in a room and you take them through a couple of different exercises. Um, I do them based on worksheets because it forces them to sit down and think critically and develop their own answers. But that's really the goal. It starts with a brand perception worksheet, which is a series of five scales that essentially has people place on this spectrum between traditional and modern, 
thoughtful, spontaneous, proven, cutting edge, exclusive, inclusive. They place where on the spectrum they believe their brand should fall. Hmm. And what's interesting is that often people have very different answers, Hmm. but they have very different answers sometimes because A, they disagree because that happens. And B, because they're using different words and different approaches to how they define the brand. It's kind of like that shared definition thing. You know, we're both saying the same word, but are we defining it the same way? Mm -hmm. So that's a good calibration exercise. First of all, to help me as the person putting together the style guide, the lay of the land, because that's when I start figuring out things like, okay, are we dealing with like more progressive startup feeling? Are we dealing with more like traditional establishment, a little more button up? You know, it helps me figure out what the brand footprint is, so to speak. It also helps me identify when there are issues, because for example, there is, there are always that people who are like, oh, I want to be traditional, but modern, thoughtful and spontaneous, mm. proven, but cutting edge, exclusive and inclusive. So you see all of their little, their little, um, answers clustered around the middle. And that's usually when I have to break in and say something like, guys, um, you can't be everything to everybody. You can't be the guy at the party that offended no one, was super friendly, but no one can remember his name because he was (laughs) utterly forgettable. And so that's usually a good spot. Then we move on to the voice exercise, which is literally a word cloud where I have uh, the worksheet literally says yes and no. And they have to pick from that word cloud. They can't change the words. They can't use different words. They have to choose five. No, they can't tie. Like it's a very strict process. And they have to tell me the five words that resonated positively with them and the five words that resonated negatively. And then I just let them share their answers and talk it out. Hmm. You know, it's, it's so funny. And, and that sounds fascinating. And I would love to see that process because I'm sure it just gives so many insights into people and into companies and into dynamics. Do you find or have you found yourself frequently surprised or is it often like if I came into a company that I didn't work for and hung out for a couple hours, would I anticipate, could I get a sort of feel for culture? Cause it seems like the voice and the culture are kind of closely aligned that might make me, anticipate what they might develop as a, as a voice. I will be honest and say I, for, for a very specific and practical reason, I try not to know too much in advance. Um, because one of the biggest challenges actually about doing these exercises is not getting the outcomes you're looking for. It's managing the personalities Mm. and being a third party outsider who can outsider who can at least to the client, <laughs> have that kind of plausible deniability of not understanding norms or social dynamics mm-hmm. of, you know, this is a person who should be talking more. This is a person who usually talks less. It allows me to kind of poke the beehive, so to speak, and get what I'm really looking for. But to your question, yes, I've done this enough where I've started to like by industry know like, okay, we're probably playing in this field a little bit. You know, it allow like it just experience in time shows me like, I don't know exactly where we're going to end up with a particular company, but I usually have a good idea of the baby bumpers I'm going to be moving up against, (laughs) if that makes sense. But what's really fun about these exercises is the fact that it upsets people that they, and I always get this, like, I don't like these words. And I always want to, I'm like, I promise you, I will explain why these words, but right now, just 
play by the rules. Like do follow Trust the process. Yeah. yeah. And then I have to tell them, I'm like, I choose these words for a reason because usually these are not the words we go with. But what I'm trying to do is to get people to A, by choosing the positive words, I understand the things that they're gravitating toward thematically. Mm-hmm. But it also forces them to stop using the same language they use all the time about their brand and have an emotional reaction and say something honest. Yeah, yeah. And what they really want. So that's huh. what makes it really fun. Okay, so other than voice, what's number two? So number two, and this is going to be a shorter answer for anybody who's like dry heaving in the corner somewhere like, <laughs> what? So tone is essentially the best friend of voice. So voice is, a voice are those attributes where it's like, I want people to know and think these things about my brand without me telling them that I want them to think these things. This is, these are the feelings I want to inspire. Tone is how you deliver on that promise. So for example, let's say some of the words you ended up really gravitating toward in your voice were things like expert, authoritative, candid, but still approachable. You know, you want to walk, you want to have that balance. You may say, see things like concise, uh, clear, things like that. Well, these are the attributes that describe like, what do they sound like when they talk to you? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is it when they give you those answers to your most pressing questions? What, how do they deliver it to you? What's the packaging that goes into the voice? So the, you can't have one without the other. You can't, define your brand, you can't define your brand personality and then not say, well, what does friendly actually sound like? Right. Friendly sounds, you know, typically speaking, you know, plain speaking. That's usually one that goes in there. Um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I have my word. I'm trying to, here we go. Here are my words. So, you know, for example, if you're in that financial services industry again, right, you're that authoritative expert, blah, blah, blah. You're looking for crisp, polished, balanced, measured. You're going to see that in a lot of cases where you are in an industry where by virtue of either compliance or just the nature of what you do, you have to be really careful about how, when, and where you express opinions. If you're in that more kind of fun startup phase, whatever, you know, you're, you're savvy, you're whatever, you're controversial, you're relatable. You're probably going to be looking more at tone words like conversational, persuasive, descriptive, thoughtful, you know, things like that. So that's how those words really work together. Um, Again, this is another great exercise where the the voice and tone exercises are exactly the same because I'm a woman who believes in simplicity. Um, Pick five words you like, pick five words you don't like, and let's battle it out. But there's always one word in the tone exercise that just upsets people. And I've kept it in there and it's lyrical. (laughs) It drives people nuts they like i've had people like why did you put that word in there i'm like this is the same exercise everybody goes through i promise this is not a personal attack so why what is it about that word that that throws people especially in the tech industry people just they're just like no like (laughs) miracle they just think it's terrible i've only had one company once like it and they were in the wellness industry that makes sense yeah so do they see that as like do they align it with poetic or or sort of you know, something that seems a little bit more artsy. They find it to feels... be trite. Like it's a very trite, almost childlike word. 
to some. And again, this is where these exercises are absolutely fascinating, where you see people bring to the table their own perspectives, their own ideas, their own experiences that heavily influence how people view these words. Because what's interesting about both the voice and tone exercise is that you will find, like if you were to just look at the words on paper, like if people were to just hand back to you, like these are our five different sheets, these are the words that each of us chose, you would think none of them agree about anything because you would see like 50-50 splits where like conversational is negative for this group of people, but conversational is positive for this group of people. But when you actually have them talk it out, you realize they're defining them in wildly different ways. Sure. Conversational for the positive group just might be like, I'm, I'm going to sound like a human being. Right. And then the person who put it on the negative side was like, oh yeah, I meant that too. I just, I was worried like if this implies informality. Sure, sure. And that's when, again, you start peeling back the layers of like what it's really going to look like. So before we get to the, the third aspect, um, so what is the, after all this sort of messy process, what are you left with for, for voice and for tone? Is it a, 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 you know, a sort of pithy one sentence declaration or is it a bundle of words or is it like a, what do you, what do you do? So this is where it's one of those things where like, you just gotta, it, the process that someone will go through to mentally synthesize everything that they get out of this workshop is a lot. And what I do is I, and this is just, again, my process. I take a lot of notes. I do a lot of circling on where people agree. I do a lot of Xing out of where people don't agree. And then I also just am taking notes on what are the positive words that keep coming up? What are the negative words that keep coming up when they start explaining? And usually you'll just, you'll learn to listen for it when somebody says a statement that pops, when they're like, they have that breakthrough moment when we're facilitating this discussion says, this is what we're really trying to do. And people go like, yes, that's it. So you're looking for all of these kind of patterns and, and you really just have to become an attuned listener to the discussion to basically be the conduit through which all of these messy thoughts and ideas that are scattered in the air in that discussion and you pull them down and make them concise and make them direct. In terms of what it looks like, voice, since it's a personality thing, is a little bit different than how you express tone. So they're the exact same exercise. Take a word cloud, tell me the words you like, tell me the words you don't like. In terms of the manifestation, and this will be in the show notes because I have an example style guide that people can use for themselves. I usually list about four to five positive attributes and four to five negative attributes. So these are the things that we always want people to have come to mind when they think of our brand positively without us having to tell them. And then these are the ways we should never, ever under any circumstances ever be perceived. So for example, positive attributes. Um, and these, uh, this example that I'm about to give you is, uh, is an anonymized version and synthesis of different style guides that I've created for clients. Sure. So positive. We've earned our reputation as clever, world-class game designers. So clever, world-class. We lead with a service-oriented mindset in everything we say and do. Like the experiences we create, we are always thoughtful and inclusive. We are engaging funny facilitators with keen situational awareness. Hmm. So essentially what I do is I try to create four or five power statements that allow you to describe the human as a brand. Or that was the reverse. Allow yeah, you to describe the brand, the brand yeah. as a human. 
yeah, you can trust me with your content. You can trust me with your style. I know what words are. So yeah, essentially what I do is I try to synthesize them into power statements that really capture the essence of who they are, what they value, and what they want to be perceived as. So it's very rarely just like, oh, these are the words that people like. Can you give an example of how businesses don't want to be perceived? Absolutely. So here's a, a negative attribute set. We're not aggressive or pompous when we seek to be persuasive. We don't undermine our, profession, our professionalism with inappropriate informality. We're not tied to the past where tradition limits potential. And we're not cerebral over-explainers. Hmm. So this is that balance where it's like, yes, we want to be persuasive. We want people to buy into what we're saying, but we're not going to browbeat people into it. Yeah. It also implies like you got to research and you got to prove, you know, your shit. Like, yeah. sorry, that's yeah. just the way it is. Uh, we don't undermine our professionalism with inappropriate informality is a great way to counterbalance something where you want people to view you as engaging and funny. Right. You know, that's, that's where you show people, this is where we want to go. These are the boundaries of the sandbox. Now, when it comes to tone, tone's a little bit different. Voice is a static component of your style guide, meaning these are the always things. Mm -hmm. Tone can kind of shift around a little bit depending on what the piece of content is that you're trying to create. So for example, um, this podcast is a piece of content. It adheres to our style guide, even though it's you and me personally, just as individuals coming together. But it's a lot more informal. It's a lot more relaxed. I just dropped the S-bomb a few sentences ago. You know, like things like that. So, you know, we have, the, we have this part of the spectrum, but then tonality-wise, our case studies, our real-world results, and I can link it to those in the show notes, equally adhere to our style guide, but from a tone perspective, a much more clean, and results focused, uh, no S-bombs anywhere, no personal stories about my cat and how psychotic she is, like none of that, that's all taken out. So yeah. tone, I basically, I try it when I was trying to figure out like, how do you express tone? Because when I've seen a lot of style guides in the past, it's like, oh, these are the words that we want to sound like. Right. It's like, well, no, that doesn't really, this doesn't really work. <laughs> so I created something called tone pillars which is essentially like these are the different tonal components of our brand that you need to keep in mind. You need to use these as guardrails so you know what you should be doing. And depending on the situation, you may weight one more over the other. Typically, there are two. I've done up to four, but it's usually some sort of balance. So for example, tone pillar number one, we are confident, straight-talking professionals. Our audience doesn't want to be sold to, they want facts. So usually what I do with each pillar is I have, again, a power statement that encapsulates what we sound like, right? So we said we're clever. We said we're world-class. We've said we're experts. What does that sound like? Well, we sound like confident, straight-talking professionals, right? Because we know who our audience is. Then underneath it, I usually uh, have a little section called how you do it. So how do you embody that power statement? And then how you don't do it. So going back to straight-talking, confident professionals, do be clear, concise, and direct in your messaging. Use simple, straightforward language. Content should be easy to read, both in word choice and in layout. How you don't do it? Long sentences, adverbs, repetition, and jargon. Protracted exposition and meandering introductions, uh, which I definitely wrote as a word nerd, and I know you appreciate it because I definitely used fluffy language to prove my point. <laughs> and then positioning the science behind what we do ahead of the value we provide. 
So mm. that last one is a very interesting one because that is an example of a tone principle that on the surface sounds like it applies to a lot of people, but this is where you really need to listen when you're doing this workshop. Positioning the science behind or behind what we do ahead of the value we provide was for an organization where they actually had a very science focused audience and they were losing them and not getting their expertise in front of people because they were so value focused because of their marketing team. Hmm. So there's that. Interesting. Yeah. So, and then the second pillar, like another example, we are also approachable people. So we're confident, straight talking professionals. The balance is we are also approachable people, be conversational and relatable, add a dash of respectful wit should opportunity arise, demonstrate understanding of challenges, blah, blah, blah. How you don't do it, word choice that is too informal or communicates that we view what we do as a quote, casual business inappropriate or ill-timed humor that demonstrates a lack of situational awareness or overcomplicated theoretical explanations that show we don't know our audience. So. Huh. Okay. So voice is first. Tone is second. Mm -hmm. What's third? Oh, third is, this is where it's funny. People are always like, so what's the third part of a style guy? And I'm like, style. (laughs) Wait, what? And my style is literally just like what the words look like on a page, where the commas go, um, you know, how you capitalize, how you don't capitalize, things like that. Because one of the one of the most dead giveaways to me on any business website, and I challenge anybody listening to this to go and run this exercise for yourself and then just be devastated by the results. Um, every blog article you write, depending on how you wrote it, adheres to different style conventions if you don't have a style guide. Uh, you should hear the violence that erupts in our comma drama uh, slack channel which by the way it is called comma drama because guess what we fight about commas and john you are wrong the oxford comma is not supposed to be everywhere it says so in ap style i'm going to leave this conversation for another day but everybody has different opinions on this so there is no workshop for this if you are the nerd that is in charge of your content go out There are plenty of style guides that are already made for you. AP style book, Chicago manual of style in the, I actually wrote a a pillar about how to create content style guides and I have a whole section devoted to, okay, so you know, you need the style guide within a style guide. How do you choose which one is right for you? I have a whole section on that. Don't need to involve anybody in that workshop in this because they will just fight about commas and literally none of them are writers. None of them. (laughs) Nine times out of 10, they either, they, they don't know what they don't know and they're cool with it or they're just going to argue based on arbitrary ideas about what they think grammar should be. My favorite is when people capitalize words based on importance. That's not a, like inbound marketing, not a proper noun guys. Like, stop, stop capitalizing it. Like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. So, you know, that's really the third part. So I don't have a long winded answer about that, but usually the way that manifests itself in a style guide is first section is explaining what its content style guide is explains what the three components are, gives you your positive attributes for voice, negative attributes for voice, your various tone pillars, whether it's two, three, or four of them. And then last but not least, it's usually just an appendix. It says, this is the style guide we adhere to, whether it's AP style, whatever. These are the exceptions to it, like an impact. You guys want to drain my will to live from my body. So one of the exceptions we have is that we use the Oxford comma all the time, like a little punctuation cancer. And I accept it and I live with it, right? 
or how, whether or not you want to capitalize job titles. And then I have an appendix that goes through. And by the way, since none of you jokers will probably ever want to log into AP Stylebook, here are the most common rules you need to know. How you, demonstrate, how you display numbers, how you capitalize things, blah, blah, blah. That's a style guide. For what it's worth, I am, am not a all or nothing Oxford comma adherent. I, I use it situationally or I prefer to use it situationally. When I came on to Impact, I was, I was made aware that we are, in the words of one of our colleagues, an Oxford comma family, mm. which means we use them at all times. So in my own writing, I uh, use them as the situation dictates. Um, so I am not the adherent that you think I am. Uh, and I can share your frustration where sometimes it feels like yeah, but you still put two spaces after a period, so we have our own beef. I no longer do. I under I, I believe in the uh, <laughs> the two space after a period to me is just really readable uh, and really scannable. And often when we're using things in sentences that might have you know whether they're they're numbers or abbreviations that that might have periods in them. Um, having a period, a full stop, followed by two spaces, to me is really scannable, but I am not dying on that hill. I have moved past it, and I sleep well at night. Uh, I seem to recall you got a little petty in a previous <laughs> Slack conversation, but that's a story for another day. We do yeah. indeed have a common drama Slack channel, and uh, <laughs> as Liz says, it is sometimes contentious, but, but, but in a very loving way, because I think we all are... Um, we all want to be precise in, in how we write and how we portray our business. And it, you know, nine times out of 10, it's, it's you know, me uh, slacking Liz or, or Ramona, uh, another colleague saying something like, wait, when you put US, do you put periods after US for United States? Wait, you do, in, you do in text, not in title. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, so those small sorts of details. Those are the, the this conversation that people are hearing right now, this is exactly why I say go do that exercise on your website. Now, unless you have one editor who's editing everything and that means it's going through the same set of mental rules that they have, um, more than likely you're gonna see capitalization differences, punctuation differences, double spaces difference. after periods. Yeah, like you're gonna see, it, it's gonna, there is going to be a difference in experience that people have. Now, the reason why this is so important is because you can sit there and say that you're detail-oriented all day long. But if I'm someone who goes to your website and trust me, whether you want to admit it or not, you're going to have nerds like me, whether they're content nerds or different nerds, who will be like, mm, and that comma's not supposed to be there. Hmm, why do they capitalize that subheading this way and that subheading that way? Like, again, that's coming back to that. What are you communicating outside of your message? And, and by extension, you're exactly right. And I know I am this way that I will judge a, a website or a business if your copy is wrong. If, if, if you make an error or if you are inconsistent, I either think A, that you don't know enough to make it proper or you don't care enough to make it proper. Like you, and care is a, is a synonym for resources here. Like, are you going to put the effort and time and the necessary manpower into making something standardized or not? And what does that, as you say, Liz, what does that convey, convey about you know, business A versus business B? Oh, 100%. And the fact is, like, even if you have content nerds on staff like me and John, hi, we disagree. You need to have a single source of truth. And if you already have a content nerd and you're sitting there going like, oh, or maybe it's you. Maybe you're that content nerd. What happens if you leave? Or what happens if your content nerd leaves and all of a sudden you don't have the rules written down? Like, everybody needs to play by the same set of rules. 
But what's interesting about this discussion is that it really goes back to what we were talking about with Dan, because we're talking about this from the perspective of like that omniscient voice, like this is what the brand sounds like in a case study when it's not attributed to a person. But this really allows people, and this is one of the first sections I have in the style guide, which is you're going to use this in one of two ways. You will use this down to the letter. If you are someone who is writing that case study, writing that website copy, the stuff that is not supposed to be attributed to a human, where you're going out into the universe and expressing yourself holistically as the brand, not as John Becker. But the second piece of that is you need to understand that every time you open your mouth on behalf of the brand, this is what we want people to feel. It should inform your choices, not dictate them. Hmm. So that's why I always encourage people, like, just read it. Get a feel for it. You know, understand what it is that we're going for. Because if we're sitting here saying that we're not going to be pompous blowhards that are aggressive when we're trying to be persuasive, I can't have someone out there writing that way. Right. Being like, you, you have to do this because otherwise you're stupid. You know, but the way that manifests itself individually, if you're doing it in the positive way, you know, that we're, we're engaging people and getting them excited when we persuade them. We're controversial, but we back it up with facts. That's going to sound different from everybody else's mouth because I don't want people to feel muted or stifled. This right. is something I actually hope to be talking about in digital sales and marketing world this year in April. But I think one of the biggest trends that I'm at least trying to push very hard for impact is people always say our, one of our biggest differentiators from our competitors is our people. And then I want to be like, so why do all of your blog articles sound exactly the same? I get no sense of who these people are, what they value personally. Like I, uh, the challenge I always give to people when they write is I want you to not only answer this question, I want you to answer this question in a way that may, that, that in such a way where nobody else could have done it, but you. And you do that by having those content style guidelines in place. Because that gives people barriers to mm -hmm. know that they're not sort of going yeah. too far. Yeah, that makes Again, total it's, sense. it's not telling them how exactly to sound. People can sound friendly, approachable, controversial, candid, and whatever in their own unique mm -hmm. way. I have a very specific way of doing that. You have a very specific way of doing that. For people who listened to that episode a couple weeks ago, you know, Dan has a very different voice. You know, we all have a very specific way of carrying ourselves. So my hope is that the style guide, at least the way I build them, gives people freedom as opposed to limiting them. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, so two kind of logistical questions to um, imagine the practical use of, of a style guide. First is, where does it live? And sort of how is it used in onboarding, in, um, in sort of the culture of, of a company? And second is how does it evolve, get updated, get revisited, et cetera? So, the, so what we're talking about is how you onboard people to it and then the ongoing governance of it. Exactly. Um, it, it, so here's the thing. I get really excited about this topic. You get excited about this topic. Some of you listening out there might also be like, oh my God, facilitating workshops. Let's talk about synonyms for feelings and who we are as a brand. And a lot of people you work with will just not care. Like they care, but they want to already have the knowledge in their heads. Like, you know how many times like we send out an email and it's like, here, read this. And people are like, oh yeah, I totally watched it. I did it. And they did not. They did not do it. And this is something that's very common in content marketing in general. 
If you don't have buy-in from leadership, it's not going to happen. So for example, we are actually in the process of refining our own style guide and we're going to be rolling it out and we're going to be doing it as part of an all hands meeting where under duress with a, an audience taken hostage, I will in a very happy and fun way, talk people through what our new voice and tone stuff is and how it's supposed to be used. That video will be recorded. It will then be part of the onboarding for every new employee. And it lives in, so a lot of companies have like an internal intranet system, whether that's a wiki or we use Confluence, which is through Atlassian. I know that Microsoft has like SharePoint, I think, or stuff like that. There are a lot of different ways you can do it, but essentially never have it be something that is only accessible in an email you sent out or can only be printed out once. It needs to be a living document where the link doesn't change and it just gets updated. So mm -hmm. ours, because we're super fancy, is in Google Slides. That's it. Like, it's just a Google slide document that's really fun and visual to look at. At least I think it is. Like, because I sometimes see style guides, and this is where that one of your questions at the start is like, what do they look like? It's going to vary wildly. And in the pillar about content style guides, which teaches you what they are, how to facilitate the workshop yourself, and I literally give away all of these materials so you can do this yourself, I have a lot of examples of different ones that are publicly accessible on the internet. Sometimes they're very long, sometimes they're very short. Sometimes they are very wordy, sometimes they're not. I know that I have an audience of people at our company who just need to know what it is and will not sit there and read something dry and boring and non-visual and ugly. Marketers are very superficial, shallow people and I know this because I'm one of them. <laughs> so that's really what I try to do. I try to make it so in five minutes or less, first of all, I know they're not gonna read every slide in that deck, it will never happen, but there are, Five slides, five slides that are critical. And I made it so they can skim it, get the idea of what I'm talking about in five minutes or less. And that's how you gotta do it. In terms of updating it, um, we have had, usually if you're the person who's owning it, and first of all, like everything else, this needs to have an owner, someone who loves it, cares for it, tends to it like a little chia pet. You know, like you gotta just love it, water it, care about it, don't let it feel neglected. Just keep an ear, just keep an ear to the ground unless you go through like a major like change. And that's usually what forces it is like, for example, we've gone through pivots, significant pivots in our organization, uh, which resulted in me adding a tone pillar about a teacher's mindset. Um, and then other things like one of the times I did, I actually did a, um, a content style guide workshop with town park, which is a national, like concierge organization that does parking at hotels, hospitals, lots around the country. Uh, it's, it was massive. And they had been around for more than 10 years. Hmm. The reason they had to go through these branding exercises with me again, however, was because they had a massive leadership change at the top. They had hit their 10-year mark. They had a new CEO. They were looking to move in a different direction. They wanted to start sending a different message. So sometimes if you have a rebrand that's happening, if you are that content marketer, keep your ear to the ground. Is that rebrand just because somebody got tired of the logo and thought it belonged in a GeoCities website in 2006? Okay, you probably don't really need to do much because the company is changing. But is it meant to usher in a new era, a new chapter, a new a reintroduction to your audience of who the brand is? That's when you get in there and get with leadership and say, is this still accurate? Hmm. 
And then usually you don't have to rerun the workshop again. You usually have to rerun parts of it. The brand perception exercise, because it might move the footprint around about like, are we traditional, are we modern, are we cutting edge, blah, blah, blah. And then just have them review the, the tone and, and voice stuff and really kind of just like, is this still correct? Hmm. So, and then just update it and then let people know it's been updated. Put it in Slack. Uh, if it's a really big change, like you're redoing everything, make it a priority, have it at a company all hands meeting, force people to read it the first time, then give them the link afterward. Do not give your people homework, guys. You're already struggling to get them to write blog articles. You really think they're going to sit down and read a style guide? Like, come on, hold them hostage. Just get it in front of their face once. After you get it in front of their face once and they have a general understanding they will be more likely to open the document and reference it later because they're not scared of it. Hmm. People are terrible. And I know cause I'm one of them again. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. Super interesting. And I mean, it, it just feels so important. I know when I came on to, to impact and granted I am more of a, a word nerd than most, but I read our style guide. That was like one of the first things that I did um, I think even before I started, because I had to write an article during my interview process and yes, I wanted did. to match the tone of, of, of the business, you know, and I had been used to doing more sort of formal writing. Um, and this was a, okay, you know, these are like the five or six words that I'm going to use to um, kind of have in my head as I write. These are the grammatical, grammatical conventions that I'm going to follow. And I know for me, it was like, it was like a map. And so often, um, you know, when we set out to write, it can feel daunting to have, you know, to not know exactly where it's going to go. Um, and that's why we do things like make outlines and, um, you know, write um, pitches. Um, and I think a style guide can be another kind of map that can make the process of creation less scary. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to think so. I mean, again, it's one of those things where you never know you need a content style guide until something goes wrong. And that's usually something like an uppity little person who's like, love your company and love your stuff. Just want to send you a couple of links of mistakes I found, you know, or things like that, or even worse in sales conversations. I just, how many times have, has a company lost a deal because they didn't really have a good sense of the company culture or the core values of an organization. Yeah. And whether if you're a marketing leader who's listening to this, style plays into this greatly. Again, there is so much you can communicate just through how you package your messaging and your words. Because you can communicate things like an approachable family-oriented mindset in the language that you choose in your power statements and your headings on your website. You know, you can, you can, by empowering your people to sound more like themselves with the guardrails of a content style guide in place, because usually that's what makes people afraid to really give their people the freedom to just sound like themselves and have their personality on display. And it's also what scares people from doing it themselves. It's because they don't know where the boundaries are. By having clearly defined boundaries, by having clearly defined guardrails, you make it so your people can actually start building human to human connections where, you know, we talk about, they ask you answer all the time, which is the business philosophy of Marcus Sheridan. You know, 
Be the most honest and thorough and transparent teacher you can about the biggest questions, concerns, and fears your audiences have, and everything is possible. But the thing that people do not talk about is that you can't just answer the question honestly and transparently. You have to do it in a way that makes it stick that you were the one that did it. You have to be memorable. You have to be a human being. You have to be able to communicate without saying it who you are. And again, that's why you lose those deals. That's why people go to somebody else who is better able to communicate without ramming it down their throat. This is what we value. This is who we are. And this is what we stand for. That's awesome. So, preview DSMW 23. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Liz. That was an education. That was fantastic. Thank you. What are you teaching us today? Because it's learning corner time. Uh, indeed, it is. And, and um, I actually read this a long time ago, and I, I came back to it, and I've, I've always really liked it. And it actually, um, it actually comes from Ben Franklin. So Benjamin Franklin, that Ben Franklin. And he was using it. He, he told this anecdote once to, um, to Jefferson, to Thomas Jefferson. And um, he was using it as a way to explain how difficult it can be to sort of you know, write in committee where um, everyone has their hand in on, you know, making edits and that sort of thing. But I've always read it as illustrating a different point. And I just wanted to kind of use it as a little bit of a learning today um, because I've always, I've always really liked it. So um, he tells the story to Thomas Jefferson that, that he had a friend who was um, a hatter, that is a maker of hats. And he had, um, you know, finish his apprenticeship and he was going to start his own business. And the first thing that he wanted to do, granted this is in the 1700s, um, was to make uh, a sign, like a, a big handsome sign to hang outside his shop window and, and entice people, you know, the, the, the marketing of its day. And so he, he wrote it out and he wrote out, uh, John Thompson, hatter, makes and sells hats for ready money. And then there's a picture of a hat kind of hanging down from it or cut out of a hat. And he showed it around and, and thought it, you know, to people and see what they thought. And um, first people, the, the first thing that they noticed was they thought, well, you don't really need to use the word hatter because it says you sell hats and there's a hat there. So you can kind of take that out. And then they went and they said, um, so remember it started John Thompson, hatter makes and sells hats for ready money. And then they started thinking, well, you don't really have to say makes because customers aren't going to really care who made the hats. If they like the hats, they're going to buy them, who, whoever made them. So we took that out. And then a third thought, the, hat, the, the sign said, for ready money. And he's, the friend said, well, that's not really useful because you know, nobody buys on credit. That's not the custom around here. Um, so you could take that out. And so they were left with John Thompson sells hats. And the next friend said, well, sells hats. Well, no one would expect you to give hats away. So why would you need to say sells? So they cut that out and it said, John Thompson hats. And remember that there was a picture of a hat on the sign. So they thought that was redundant as well. So they cut out hats. And so what it ended up as is John Thompson with a picture of a hat subjoined. 
And I've always loved that. And I, I see Franklin's point about how you, the more input you get, the further you get away from your initial plan. But I've always loved that idea. And I think I, I stress this often as an editor that economy is, is always your friend. And, you know, if you find so often we tend to repeat ourselves or we tend to sort of crowd up what we're saying with things that are actually redundant, that are actually um, self-apparent or that, you know, feel um, unnecessary. And uh, take it from Ben Franklin, or at least my interpretation of Ben Franklin, and be economical, cut out superfluities, and um, streamline your writing. Superfluities, I love. <laughs> okay, so what, so what are we, what are you reading, Liz? So this is actually uh, an article that I shared this morning in our marketing pod Slack group. So we have our brand team where we're all together, and then we have our separate comma drama people where we fight about grammar because nobody else wants to hear about it. Um, but it's from Search Engine Journal. And I've been really trying to make a concerted effort in this new year. And, and if you listen to the last episode with Franco Valentino, you know that I'm really trying to make a concerted effort to like understand SEO and like not screw things up and finally learn what schema is and stuff like that. But there's been this interesting trend um, that started a while ago. Now there's this thing called a featured snippet which is essentially when you search for things on Google now, you'll notice there are like little boxes that come up for before like the one, two, three, four. It's called position zero. It might have a picture, it might have a definition, it might have a list. It basically allows you in some cases to get the answer for what you need without clicking through to the website to figure out like what that thing is or to learn more. So the challenge with that, however, is that now there's a big concern that Google is ho hogging half of the traffic. So there's this great article, Google is hogging half of your traffic, how to get it back from Search Engine Journal. And there's this quote that just absolutely blew my mind. And as someone who is tasked literally with creating content that drives traffic to our website so we can convert qualified leads and then, sorry to blow your mind guys, yes, we're educating you, but we also want to close deals from those leads. Already more than 50% of Google searches end without a click. That's a huge threat to our websites. All of the rankings and visibility in the world are meaningless. If the Google searcher never actually lands on your page, what's the point? So again, going back to my favorite hyphenated verb, dry heaving commenced as soon as I started reading this. And I encourage everybody to read this because we need to understand the implications of what it means when people aren't actually getting to our site. Content is supposed to be bringing people to us. So we can be like, hey, look at us. We're like super great teachers and we're like super memorable and like super transparent and like, oh my God, don't you just like love us so much. But if they never land on the page, I can't woo them with my amazingness. It doesn't happen. I remember reading something about um, the the number of searches that result in zero clicks on desktop is higher than you'd think. It's somewhere, you know, 30 or 40%. And then it's way higher with mobile searches. Mm -hmm. And then what we're not even really taking into account is a voice search, you know, with, with um, Alexa and, and Google and, and Siri. So often we're getting answers without, you know, in voice searches, we're not clicking at all. Yeah. What's interesting though about voice search, especially from a business perspective though, is like how many people are asking complex queries. Like I'm not sitting there making spaghetti going like, you know, Hey, great <laughs> Google machine. 
what are the most complex challenges a content marketer will face this year when trying to build a content strategy? Like that's just not happening. True, it's true. more like, it's not like, Hey, where, where, what, what's, who will deliver Taco Bell to me right now? Like, <laughs> you know, like it's a very like the intent behind the searches and voice. There has been like there was this big boom, and I even put it in my talk at Impact Live a few years ago. Like, voice search is going to dominate and blah blah, and it, it it's there, but it's it's not the doomsday. It didn't live up to the doomsday rhetoric that everybody had. But I encourage everybody to read this article. I'm going to link it in the show notes because it is a very candid look about how. Google, the world's largest search engine, is owning more than 50% of our traffic that's not getting to our websites. And let's not forget that in 2015, they very quietly but got caught dropping, don't be evil, from their company motto. That is a thing that happened. Oh. Well, thank you, Liz. That's... <laughs> Um, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. This was a lot of you sharing your wonderful personality and expertise and insight and we love it. Um, and what a great way to start 2020. I know. Next week, I'm going to find a way to get you in the hot seat. I'm ready. <laughs> All um, right, guys. Well, I guess until next week, I got to go write a newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.